Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. April 3rd, 2021, episode 191. Doug Potter. Hello, one and all, to another edition of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Kevin England back again with another installment of the BK Corner. As promised, this episode is a one-on-one conversation with Kentucky beekeeper Doug Potter. Sometimes I get to know beekeepers through this channel or that, and other times I make acquaintance simply through some of the exchanges we have through email. In the case of Doug, he is a listener of the show, and something in a past episode, lost track of it by now, compelled him to write in and share some commentary, and we've exchanged a few sentiments back and forth over time. It resulted in him sending me some data about the polystyrene hives I'm using. And he also sent me one. And, well, this is a follow-on to learning more from Doug. I circled back with him at one point and asked if he wouldn't mind spending some time discussing what he has going on there in Kentucky and share some personal insights with the poly hives. What you're about to hear is a recording of us just talking back and forth about those topics and more. I hope you find it interesting, and I have to say thanks to Doug for giving up the time to come and talk to us. One of the odd things about some of the people I talk to over time is that, for some of them, I may never get to meet them. I sometimes hop online with, say, Gary from Kiwi Mana and just talk beekeeping. Unless he comes over to the States, or I make a jaunt over to New Zealand, It's likely we'll never get to meet in person, yet I count Gary as a friend in many ways and appreciate the connection we've made through beekeeping. As to Doug, serendipity is going to play a role as I'm heading to Kentucky this summer to participate in EAS after it was canceled because of COVID from the Northeast and subsequently rescheduled for the Bluegrass State. Given that EAS is running on an abbreviated schedule, I think it might afford the opportunity for us to go a day early and meet up with Doug and Tammy, and I get to thank him for his time in person. We'll see how the summer plays out, but as you see, we got on well, and I think we had quite a few interesting experiences to share. So with no further delay, here's a one-on-one with Kentucky beekeeper Doug Potter. Hi, everybody. Wanted to uh, take a moment to say I want to do more of these style episodes. I'm going to have an interview here today, and I have a lot of interesting people on lists to talk to, and one of them is Doug Potter. Hi, Doug. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Kevin? I'm good. You know, you and I um, connected a while back, and on my fault, we've had a couple of misses, but I've been wanting to get you on the program and uh, I know one of the interesting things we're going to talk about is polystyrene hives, but you have a lot more things going on than that. And I just want to say thanks up front for taking the time <laughs> dealing with me, with uh, our missus here, and uh, glad you could make it on the program. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast the last few years. So, Doug, you're a listener. You've uh, written a couple of things into me, and I, of course, know you by another means. You're married to Tammy Horn Potter, who is the state apiarist in 
Kentucky, but uh, what I wanted to do is just ask you if you could, I know you live in uh, Fayette County, Kentucky, but tell us a little bit about your beekeeping background, how long you've been keeping bees, where you are, what it's like, where you're at, just a little background for us. Okay. Um, basically, I'm I, I married into bees. I didn't know anything about bees until I met Tammy and actually didn't get involved in actually keeping bees until a year or so after we, we'd gotten together. Um, her grandfather had kept bees, and she's obviously well-known in the bee community, has written several books, um, but I didn't know anything about bees at all. Um, so that's been, this is only the fifth year that I've been keeping bees. Yeah, a little bit uh, similar to my situation. My wife started keeping bees, and then at some point she decided that it would be better if she stepped out and got involved in Boy Scouts, and I became the beekeeper, and she became the beekeeper's wife. So uh, seems like you're in the opposite <laughs> direction. You you do have a honey company, though, and uh, I, I know a little bit about you. You're not a typical hobbyist beekeeper. You guys have quite a few hives. Yeah, I think we fall into the sideliner category. I mean, Tammy is obviously employed with the state and is full-time involved in bees, but I'm the one who does the most hands-on work with our own bees. Um, we, had, we have about 200 hives, and we sell honey at the, a local like health store and at various farmer's markets, uh, but COVID's kind of taken away the farmer's markets. Um, so you're in Fayette County, Kentucky, which is right uh, adjacent to Lexington. And what I know about that, uh, looking on a map, is you're south of Cincinnati, north of Knoxville. And if I have to put you in a north-south latitude, given I live on the East Coast, you're somewhere about the same latitude as Richmond, Virginia. Uh, tell us a little bit about what the area is around you. Is it hilly, mountainy, flat? Right. Um, we're in what's called the bluegrass region of Kentucky. Uh, it's a, a plateau before the sort of foothills of the Appalachian Mountains that are south and east of here. Um, so I guess it's what you'd call rolling hills. Uh, there's a lot of horse farms here. So there's a lot of pasture, a lot of areas. And then there's a lot of typical soybean and corn agriculture. Um, it's for distinct seasons, you know, um, and it's kind of a, a mid latitude. We don't, we don't, things don't start up real early like they do in Georgia or Tennessee, uh, but we're kind of like right before Ohio, basically, in terms of the bee season. So as we record this, it's a latter part of March. For us, the crocus just bloomed. We have some snowdrops out. Buds are not on the trees yet, but you're a little further south. Um, have you seen your forage season start? Yeah, crocus have been out for maybe three, four weeks, something like that. Um, daffodils, things like that, are, you know, neighborhood flowers are starting to come out. Um, the, the major pollen source in the agricultural areas around here um, is a plant called dead nettle, purple dead nettle, and there, there, there's a couple of varieties of that. Um, but that's just come on in the last week. A lot of the fallow agricultural fields are just kind of turning purple. I don't know if you all have that up there or not. Yeah, it's a little bit later for us, um, but but I would assume your bees are flying every day. Yeah, yeah. As long as it's above 
you know, 45 or so, they, they've, they've flown probably four out of five days for the past two or three weeks. Are you still having those nights that get down into the 20s and 30s, or is it a little bit warmer for you? Uh, it's it's a little bit erratic. Um, it's it's usually below freezing, but we haven't had any extended periods of freezing. During yeah, the day. We, we had quite a bit of snow here in the northeast, but I'm guessing you didn't see too much of it, right? No, we had we had a little bit of, you know, an ice storm in, in midwinter. But aside from that, we've had a fairly mild winter. Not like you guys have. <laughs> yeah, we still have just a little vestige of snow in the front yard. Hasn't melted yet, even though it was 60 degrees today. So what, when does your forage season kick off? It's got to be somewhere beginning of April. Um, they're bringing in nectar and tons of pollen right now. Um, so. Okay, so a little, so March then. Yeah, I'd say second or third week of March is typically when they start cranking up a little bit. Um, but like I said, the, the the two different yards or two different counties that we have yards in are about an hour apart. Uh, and we've had very different experiences in, in those two locations, so. So you have a handful of hives on your property, you told me, but you also have out yards. Tell me how they work, how many hives you have, how big they are. Well, just give me a little background. I'm curious to know. Do you, do you run primarily Langstroth hives? Uh, yeah, they're all Langstroth hives. Uh, they're either eight-frame mediums, or we've been running these polystyrene, six-frame polystyrene hives. I'd say maybe two-thirds of our hives are polystyrene, and the other ones are the wood eight-frame mediums. Um, the farm here in Fayette County, it had as much as like half our bees, like 60, 80 hives over the summer. Um, we've taken 20 of those and put them uh, on different, I, I work part-time for the University of Kentucky and I'm split between entomology and forestry. Uh, and there's an experiment that's three years running that I do with a professor named Claire Rishoff in the entomology department. And she uses our hives. So we've been moving our hives around a lot this spring. There's 18 different locations that she has this experiment set up on this year. Um, is it is it uh, full time for you? I'm assuming it sounds like you're in bees every day. Uh, yeah, the 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 work that I do for UK is real intermittent. So, um, I, I, yeah, I'm in bees every day, pretty much. Yeah. I, I wanted to um, switch gears and talk about some of your background you were telling me that tammy used to run a grant funded project for east kentucky university and then uh there was a time period where you got involved in that for a while take us through that a little bit just tell me what that was about and what the objectives were well that, yeah that was pretty much my first exposure to bees uh, she uh, started and and maintained a grant funded program called coal country bee works which was essentially keeping bees on strip mine sites in Eastern Kentucky. And somewhere along the way, she got the job as the state apiarist and moved up here to be closer to Frankfurt. And the apiarist position with the state is, is, is very much full time. And so someone else took over her project at EKU. Uh, and for whatever reason, they didn't work out and were unable to continue with them. And the, the, the hives went untouched for almost a year and she 
asked me to go down and try and deal with them. And I really didn't know very much about bees except what we'd done on our back porch and that kind of stuff. So she just sort of threw me in the deep end down there and that that's how I learned how to take care of yeah. over the over the phone with her baptism uh, by fire, huh? <laughs> very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds similar to the Appalachian Headwaters uh, program in West Virginia that I know they try to help the miners find alternative ways to earn income, and I, I'm sure that the program wh wherever it landed was probably very helpful for a bunch of people. Yeah, intangibles are hard to measure, but actually she helped the Appalachian Headwaters people write their original grant. I think they may have gotten some of their ideas from 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 Tammy's program, uh, but it's been closed for several years now. But Appalachian Headwaters is, I think, very successful in, in their undertaking. Yeah. yeah, I had an interest to uh, go down there and do some teaching, but I guess COVID has kind of slowed that down a little bit. and. We'll see. Maybe in the future that'll work. Um, you, you mentioned that you keep polystyrene hives, and honestly, that's the way we connected. Uh, somewhere out of the blue, you sent me a note saying, I'm going to send you something. And I don't think you might be unique in that aspect as you're one of maybe two or three people who ever literally sent me something. You sent me a six-frame polystyrene hive with a custom bodyboard and roof uh, configuration, which I'm literally learning about now. And one of the more uh, popular things I've done recently was talk about these polystyrene hives. And you're the one that I, I will give credit has turned me on to them. Um, and I saw pictures from your yard. You have tons of them. So tell me a little bit about the special hive you sent me and your, your impressions about those specifically uh, six frame hives that you're running. Right. Yeah. No, I think I sent it to you because I had heard you talk about insulation and the kind of environment inside the hive. And you must have mentioned polystyrene as well. Um, I have a 10 frame version of the, that hive. Oh, okay. Yeah. That was my experience with those hives. I was not familiar with the six frame until you sent me one. Gotcha. Well, I think originally started looking at them simply because they were lighter and easier to manage. You know, Tammy's 50, I'm 50, you know, neither of our backs is getting any younger. Uh, and she had always done eight frame medium material. Um, and I, I don't know, I just started reading and it seemed like a lot of almost all of Australia, New Zealand, a lot of European countries had gone to polystyrene and we're having real good luck with it. Um, and it's lighter. Um, so I decided to give it a try. Um, it was, I'm a bit of a carpenter. So we, we made all of, you know, our baseboards and tops and stuff down in the basement. And so we were able to just buy the supers and put everything else together. Do, do you run strictly your bottom board uh, feeding cover or do you use any of the I think you and I had exchanged and you found some shortcomings in the uh, original design of those things. Yeah, we're on, I don't know, version 2.3 or something. I, I, I can't even, I can't remember what I might have sent you, but we, we've been constantly improving them. Um, the, the reason we decided to make wood bottom boards is basically because the polystyrene ones 
made it difficult to move hives around, uh, to strap them down and throw them up on a pickup and that sort of stuff. Okay. I, I was always concerned that they were going to break or wouldn't be, be tight. Um, and I don't know, we were just kind of rough on the equipment. So the, the heavier duty wood bottom boards that we made seemed to work a lot better. Yeah. And then again, it looks like you designed a quick way to feed them through your top cover. Um, you had a lot of access to the top of the hive. They, they don't, the one uh, knock I'll say about the, that particular form factor is you have to buy their feeder. A regular conventional feeder doesn't typically fit it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I do have a bunch of those polystyrene feeders, you know, top tray feeders. Are they well. any good? Yeah. They're, 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 they work very well. Yeah. Um, we, we don't do a whole lot of feeding. We, we've been leaving as much, we've been schlepping a lot of honey on the hive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting because uh, being who I am, I don't need more equipment in my garage. And I had five frame feeders for conventional nukes. What I ended up doing is instead of building a feeder, I built a shim that covered the top of the box, but accepted the five frame feeder underneath. And I, I got away with doing that last year and feeding those nukes. And I built a bunch of them. They were pretty straightforward to build. Right. Um, that's one thing about beekeepers. They tend to be, <laughs> have a lot of ingenuity, I would think. And your, your bottom board was really well designed. I was, you know, first thing you do when you get the boxes, you open it up and you go, what is this thing? And then you start to study it. And I remember calling Bob Gloss and telling him, come on over here, take a look at this. And we sat through and looked at the design of it. And we said, boy, this is clever. That's neat. I like the way they did that. So uh, to your point, I, I thought it was really well, well made. Well, I tell you, the, the first ones we made, and I, I think that that's probably what I sent you, were very narrow. Uh, and we had several hives blow over, especially if they were out in fields and you know, straight line winds over open fields. Uh, so we ended up making them quite a bit wider, kind of a wider footprint so that they uh -huh. wouldn't blow over. Yeah. I, I used yours for a season and I think you probably by now have seen pictures of my hives. They sit on the polystyrene or the polystyrene hives sit on the PVC hive stands and your stand just didn't fit them well and the regular ones fit so i ended up switching back to them for the winter but i just built new um pads and stuff for a new bee yard and and it's possible that i can go back to it this spring right so so your your thoughts on um you you keep wooden hives i'm assuming you use eight frame equipment too and then you have these six frame equipment. Can you talk about the pros, cons, differences, just general, what do you think of this stuff? Um, I guess I'm, I'm sort of biased. I really do like the polystyrene hives better. I just feel like the bees perform better and grow quicker. Um, we did an experiment maybe, not this last winter, but the winter before um, comparing the polystyrenes to the wood uh, to see how much honey they consumed over the winter. Uh, there was some thought around here that, you know, having warmer hives or the polystyrene would make the bees more active because they had, you know, they weren't getting as cold and that they would actually end up eating more honey. So anyway, we did a little experiment and we found that, you know, on average, the polystyrenes ate 
maybe, you know, six or eight pounds less of honey than the woodlands. Yeah, so let's talk about that. I I saw the study. You sent me the information, the winter weight loss study. You did 67 hives. 24 of them were wooden. 43 were poly. You measured how much food the bees ate, and you had that graphed out. One of the other things you did was some of the hives were wrapped in just a simple black plastic, and some of them were plain old wooden hives or, or poly hives. Um, tell me a little, go into a little more detail about the setup of that study that you did. And, you know, um, I could, I can then talk to you a little bit about what the actual outcome was because I saw the results of it and I have some questions for you. Gotcha. Well, basically we, we took a couple of yards and we weighed all the hives and then we sorted them by weight. And then we just paired the closest, you know, the closest weights, we split everything randomly, one treatment or the other. Um, and we were concerned about finding out, A, whether the polystyrenes performed any better, and B, whether wrapping hives in the winter uh, made any difference. Uh, so basically half the hives were wrapped with black plastic and half the hives were not. Um, you wrapped the polys too, to be clear, right? Cor correct, yeah. And basically, we found that made absolutely no difference to the polystyrenes. They, they, there was no statistical difference. In fact, they were almost exactly the same. Um, and this, this is uh, the same kind of wrap that you they they use to like wrap pallets, a real thin black plastic that we just wrapped straight up from the bottom, not any like you know big insulated type treatment. I was basically just curious if the you know, keeping the water off of them and having a dark color that would absorb some light would make any difference. Um, and it, it did make a difference in the wood hives. Uh, the, the ones that were wrapped in black plastic used quite a bit less less honey over the winter. So if I could describe the results, let's just stay with the poly hive. Uh, weight loss was somewhere between five and seven pounds from what I could see from the chart. And it was, to your point, almost identical wrapped or not wrapped there really wasn't any difference but what was key is the weight loss in contrast to the wooden one was a lot lower um order order of magnitude especially for the no wrap wooden hive yeah they consumed about half the honey it seemed like yeah if, if you look at the wooden hive the one that was wrapped did okay uh it clearly demonstrated that at least in your conditions, they lost about seven to five pounds, but the unwrapped ones lost somewhere around, I would say, 13 to seven pounds across that scale. So that's really interesting. You you did note that it was a somewhat mild winter. That's what I read, right? Correct. And this is basically like November, December, just into the first week of January. And so relatively short time period too and they were only weighed three times over that that period um but i was i was kind of surprised that the black plastic made that big a difference as well yeah yeah you know my neighbor down the road literally at the other end of my street wraps his hives in those simple koozie wraps and he does really well with them and when i look at them and how simple they are 
the million dollar question that everybody has that I get asked all the time when we do training is when do you take them off and does moisture collect in them or whatever. But uh, I have to believe, you know, there's some people that say take them off so the sun can hit the hive. But I think the sun warms the, the black plastic and holds it. Um, yeah, you know, you could you could have great debates with people about the thermal properties of that stuff. But here you clearly showed that, at least in your study, the uh, food consumption was definitely impacted by it. It's pretty evident. Yeah, I think the not only the color makes a difference, but also just having an additional layer of sort of air in between the plastic and the wood provides some sort of boost insulative value that's where when you say it was just a thin plastic i don't think that matters i think you're right it is just that little air pocket between that makes a difference did you find any moisture when you took the, the black stuff off no uh, but both the polystyrene and the wood hives had a more traditional quilt box on top uh, with some insulation so most of the condensation happened in the quilt box, you know, kind of in the middle of that thick insulation. Uh, this, this experiment was basically to determine whether the walls made much different or not. So there's been a lot of interest in the polystyrene episodes that I've done. And uh, between you and a couple other people that I've talked to who have them, they all swear by it, but they can't. They're careful not to <laughs> go too crazy about how good they are. But if you could tell me why you think those hives work so well uh, for you, as you mentioned earlier. What's your gut feel on that? Uh, my gut feel is that I, I don't really know. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I have enough experience to tell, but I, but I do trust that, you know, all the people in Australia, lots of European countries, you know, there's been a fair amount of research done and there, there are definitely benefits to keeping the ambient temperature inside the hive more regular. Um, it just, ha have you read Tom Seeley's sort of manifesto about newer, you know, natural beekeeping approaches and more like a tree yeah, yeah. cavity? Yeah. I, I think the, you know, we, we put bees in a very difficult situation when we put them in a, you know, very thin box and the temperature, you know, varies wildly. Uh, so I, I'm I mean, familiar I with that in Tardif. I, I think I said his name right this time. Um, I hope I did. Do, do you know that? He's out of Alaska. He's been publishing a lot of different stuff about thermal, some poly and whatever. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. No, I've since read some of his stuff. I think I even, I, I talked to him or, or exchanged emails with him. Yeah, I, what, the, the work he's done uh, sort of validates all my suspicions. But, you know, of course, you validate them after. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the thing, too, is uh, he heard me say all that I was saying and then wrote me a note saying, this is what I'm finding. And I don't want to say he said what I said, but he did hit on a couple keynotes about exactly what you're talking about. The balance in the hive from temperature swings and how that impacts the colonies and the speculation of why the polystyrene stability is a little more stable now there's this great debate going on in our region about ventilation in the winter time mm. in your wooden hives you mentioned do you put quilt boxes on the top yes yeah absolutely 
Um, Do you have you know, an inner or, or uh, an opening in any way? Yeah, the, the quilt box has several screened holes in, in, okay. in it so that there's there's at least moisture can, can pass into there. Um, I, you know, things are obviously beekeeping is a regional type of thing, but I, I have not seen, I, I don't understand quite the benefit of providing ventilation as long as you insulate the top of your hive uh, quite substantially. Um, the, you know, the warm air is going to condense on whatever cold surface it comes in contact with. And if that's the roof, then you've got a real problem because it can drip down on the bees and, you know, that, that's what everyone's trying to avoid. But I think as long as the roof is equal or better insulated than the walls, the, the condensation is going to occur on the walls and not the, the ceiling there. Right. Yep. And and I've heard that recently too. I was listening to a talk where they said that the heat will, for what it's worth, it don't go crazy about this notion, but it will warm the roof more than it will warm the sides and the actual air current will do what you just kind of described. It'll go up, hit the roof, feel the heat, It'll spread across and then it'll come down as it cools and condensate on the sides of the boxes. And that was one person's theory and uh, very, very similar to that. But, you know, I've seen reasonable success with my 10 frame poly. Now, in, a, in the next week or so, I'm about to look at my six frame ones that I put into service last summer and see how they work out. But one of the questions I had for you is, they're six frames. They're not 10 frames. So how do they handle growth in the spring and how do you grow them and do you automatically split them or do you have ones that are eight high? I don't know how that works. Right. Well, that's one of the big disadvantages, I would say, to these six frame ones um, is they may just not be enough room to do uh, honey production hives in, you know. They're very handy for, you know, doing splits, uh, pulling nooks, swapping things around. Um, but in the end, I'm not sure that there's actually enough physical space inside of those. We, we stack them five and six high, um, but and anything over six, I can't really reach. And usually they're full of honey. So they're just incredible. They're too heavy up at that height. Um, but in the spring, we, we bring everything through the winter in either two or three of them. So that's 12 or 18 frames. Um, most of them are starting their brood nest in sometime first, second week of January, usually in the second box. Uh, so the last few weeks we've been running around basically trying to take the brood nest and set it down on the bottom board and then give them as much space above that as we can just to try and get ahead of any swarm preparations. Yeah, so your timetable seems to be two to three weeks ahead of ours. Uh, you're, you're locked up with what we typically experience here. We can tell when they start to brood up by watching our brood minders. Um, um, yeah, your schedule sounds very familiar, just uh, advanced of ours. And, you know, we, we communicate sometimes with folks who are in the D.C., Maryland area, maybe a little bit further south, and they seem to be in a similar timetable as you. So we can always tell when our season's about to pop because, you know, we know when they're when they start kicking things, we're we're right around the corner. Sure, yeah, it's just a wave washing up the country. Yeah. 
So you had told me that you were part of the, um, let me get the name right, Bluegrass Beekeepers uh, Association in Lexington. Tell me a little bit about the beekeeping association scene there in Kentucky, the state state organization and so on. How many people they have and how do they do? Um, well, I tell you, my wife is really the one to talk to about that. <laughs> she is active in tons of different beekeeping organizations. And uh, I, th I think she, she did EAS uh, several years ago as well. I, I don't, I'm not as active in like participation of those clubs, um, but I just attend a lot of different meetings. Um, and they're pretty typical kind of, you know, uh, potluck dinner and a speaker you know, just your average old bee meeting. Um, you know, there's some pretty isolated places in Kentucky, especially Eastern Kentucky. You know, there might only be six or eight people at a bee meeting, um, but Louisville and Lexington have, you know, bee clubs that have a couple hundred, 300 people. Not really that many. I, I think our association, you know, there's 10 branches in New Jersey. We're just one of them has about 150 knocking on 200. So you have about that many in your area? I'm saying that not that many people show up to every meeting. Um, right. We only get about 45, 50 or, you know, in the springtime. It, it yeah, I'd say there's things. maybe 50 or 60 people in the room at, at the most. Yeah. So we're obviously in a COVID year. How has COVID uh, impacted your operation and what's going on there in Kentucky? Um, it hasn't impacted me a great deal except that we used to go to farmers markets and sell honey there um and it would you know it's a better price it's a little bit of time you know to spend setting up a booth and sitting there all afternoon but you know i, I get quite a bit more than i do selling to a grocery store in bulk um, and that all farmers markets have been closed for the past year there have been none um, so that, that's really has it been conservative in Kentucky about it? I mean, you well, from New Jersey, you, you have different advantages of, you know, they were super conservative up in the Massachusetts area or whatever, but obviously Texas and some of the other ones have um, been a little more loose and fast with COVID perceptions. How, how do they feel about COVID in Kentucky? Um, it probably divides mostly along kind of political lines, but we, we had a, a governor here who, uh, was very serious about it and gave daily updates. And I think he kind of kept us from being Tennessee a little bit. You know, we, we had slightly lower numbers than most of the adjoining states because he managed to convince some people that it was a serious, serious thing. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't have, you know. It's it's all over the place. You know, I can drive an hour south, and you go into a convenience store, and most of the people are not wearing a mask. You know, in major cities, Lexington, Louisville, you know, Cincinnati, those kind of places, everybody takes it quite seriously. Yeah, I think um, New Jersey, they're not messing around. Everybody's still wearing masks and following the protocol. We get. You know, obviously being so close to New York City and having such a huge impact early on set the stage for us. But that's that's an interesting dynamic. And some of the reason I asked you that is obviously we're supposed to go up north for EAS, but this year they're going to sign it up in Kentucky. And it's apparently not too far from you. Yeah, it's right down in Shepherdsville. That's only an hour from where we live. 
Uh, it's a nice area too. You, you're going, I assume. I am. Yep. I'm. Yeah. I'm actually going to be talking, uh, giving one of the talks there on, I think, Friday morning time slot. So I'm one of the speakers. Okay. Well, Shepherdsville is a really small place, maybe 30 minutes south of Louisville. Uh, a lot of bourbon distilleries, a lot of, you know, farms around there. You'll you'll enjoy the area. Yeah, I've not been to Kentucky for any meaningful reason. I've driven through it. <laughs> um, so, so I am interested. That's one of the great things about going to different bee meetings, I think, is you get to go to different places and hang out and get a sense of what the scene is like. And so I am really looking forward. I can't tell you how much I need a vacation. So <laughs> I'm sure you guys feel the same way, right? We're all sequestered. Yeah, the cabin fever is definitely building up. So how has Tammy been faring as the state apiarist? Uh, with, with this uh, situation, has it changed well, anything? She, she's been doing her, I mean, she still manages to work an awful lot, <laughs> um, even though it's mostly from home now. Um, I think she's kind of enjoyed having some of her evenings back because she used to travel for bee meetings a lot. And now that is either not being done or being done over Zoom, which knocks out a lot of the driving that she used to do. Um, but it, it hasn't affected us too much. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Do you get a sense that you have a lot of beekeepers in Kentucky? I mean, there's a beekeeper around every corner here in New Jersey. It's a very popular pastime. How, how does it structure in Kentucky? Is it pockets of a lot of people or big open spots? Uh, my feeling is that there's a, there's a, a history of beekeeping in Kentucky but it's kind of hard to tell in the modern era how many people are really keeping bees because there's no hive registration and it's difficult to kind of get numbers. Um, but it used to be in Eastern Kentucky, you know, a lot of people's primary source of sugars, you know, almost everybody around here has a great grandpa or a papa who raised bees. You know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people had beehives in their backyard. You know, that, that's no longer the case now, but there, there's a, there's a kind of history of it around here, I guess is what I'm saying. When when you drive around, do you ever see bees in backyards? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And alongside fields and different places, I see a lot of bees. But, you know, it's it's kind of like buying a car or something. You see it all the time once you start looking for them. You know? Besides bourbon, what else does Kentucky have? Like New Jersey's known for blueberries, cranberries, different things that bees pollinate. Do you have any of that going on? Um, well, they, they, we grow a lot of vegetables here. I, I keep some hives at a farm in Georgetown, which is just north of here. That's an organic farm that does the CSA thing. Um, but I would say the majority of row crops are soybean and corn, just like almost anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some canola down in Western Kentucky, some slightly more interesting things. Uh, they went through a few years of um, trying to grow uh, cannabis here, you know, uh, to make rope hemp, that kind of stuff. Um, and that I think has fallen down a little bit. Um, but mostly around Lexington, uh, I'd say the, the primary land use is pasture for horses. It's a big, there's a lot of horse farms here. Uh, Lexington's kind of a, a, a thoroughbred breeding capital of, of this region. I, I fly out sometimes. Um for work and go over that region and you look down and you, you just see horse farm after horse farm. The, 
the tracks for the horses look like a racetrack and you just, they're all over the place where you are. Um, you see them from the air you can pick them out. Yeah. I don't think we really appreciate how unusual it is to have, you know, big several hundred acre horse farms just right next to a subdivision. You know, it's, it's unusual. Is, is Tammy the only apiarist or is there a, a bunch of them? Kentucky's no, there's just one apiarist and she works out of the state office of the vet in Frankfurt. Um, and it's a it's a non-merit position, you know, the, the uh, ag people just assign, you know, choose someone. Uh, and I don't think there's ever been more than one, uh, but she's she's done it for maybe six or seven years now. In what I know of Kentucky, it's got quite a bit of diversity. I mean, there's mountains, there's flatlands, there's woods and, you know, you could you guys have a little bit of everything geography wise, right? Yeah, that's one of the really nice things about Kentucky is that it, it does have great diversity of not only ecosystems, but, you know, geography as well. Do, do most people use Langstroth hives? You have people use top bar, people that are tree and free and, and different fringe things or lesser, um, less conventional? I, I would say 95% conventional Langstroth hives. Um, there, there's a group called the Kentucky Queen Breeders Association that has been working with Purdue and some other places trying to breed resistant lines, um, and they've they've had some some real success with that. But they're the only ones doing anything kind of exciting uh, in terms of bee stuff in Kentucky. Um, ankle biters, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So. Well, we where, have, we, where do you guys source your bees? Are you? I, I would assume you make your own, of course. But if people in Kentucky are buying bees, do they buy them out of Georgia and Florida, or are they? It, it really varies. Uh, I think that you know, maybe four or five years ago, it was almost all from Georgia and Florida. Uh, the last couple, three years, Kelly's Date Ant, some other people have started trying to get source some of their nooks more locally. Um, um, you're starting to see, uh, I've noticed, a little bit of a push out of like the Michigan area and, and Ohio and for for queen breeders and, and people selling. It's odd to think that that's going to be a region, you know, like California and Florida. But Right. Well, I, I tell you, this is probably the first full year that I've kept good enough notes and records to really feel confident that we're breeding from the right hives. Uh, we've just been kind of collecting every swarm, queen, anything, you know, over the past few years, generating enough hives to kind of get a population going. Do you, do you have an algorithm for how you're selecting? Um, basically, low mites, high honey. That's it. You know, you're, you're yeah. disqualified if you don't keep low That's mites. That's pretty good choice. <laughs> yeah. And if you're productive, that that is the cherry on top. Um, but we, we've got some. We've got several Purdue queens. Uh, we were fortunate last year. We got maybe half a dozen queens from a breeding program in Hilo, Hawaii, that were really good. Um, we've brought in a lot of different genetics. Do you guys uh, breed queens at all? I, I'd imagine you're so busy you don't have time for that. But um, I mean, we graft and breed queens for ourselves and and trade them with other people and get a few of them out and you know put them in nooks that we sell. Um, but we haven't like, you know, 
no, we don't, we don't breed hundreds every other week, you know? Yeah. Sounds, sounds like, uh, I don't want to say typical, but it sounds like you guys are heads down, got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, obviously Tammy gets to see the, the world at large, I guess, from the Kentucky scene. And I, I like what I hear is it just sounds like you guys have a good, good thing going there. Yeah. It's a, it's a good life. She, she, uh, she jokes that I'm the, the beekeeper's keeper. Yeah. <laughs> she, um, have any other books? She wrote two books. The first one, Bees in America, How to How Honeybees Shaped the Nation, and the other one was Bee Economy. Is right. she working on anything else? Uh, she published a short one called Flower Power, and then I think she has another book about uh, a woman who works uh, in the, the bee culture up there in Ohio area. Uh, and I, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the woman's name, but it's basically she's editing her journals. Um, um, but aside from that, no, I don't think she has anything anything on on tap. Yeah, I just finished reading the Bee People and the Bugs They Love book by Frank Mortimer, and I know Frank. And I'm going to have him on the program soon. Um, his book was scheduled to be released, but because of COVID, it got delayed and. Uh, it was a good book, and uh, I'm interested in getting a chance to talk to him. And somewhere, maybe uh, when we're in Kentucky, I can have a chat with Tammy, and we can just uh, maybe see if she wants to discuss some of that. Or I'm not sure. Never oh, heard, she's so. <laughs> yeah, she's she's really she's really good at explaining and tell. You know, her 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 PhD is actually in English. She's a better writer and talker and speaker. I, I'm a, I'm a doer, and she she's much better interview. I would imagine. So, so tell me, is there anything I haven't asked you about that uh, you say hmm, we should talk about that? Can you think of anything? Uh, I can't think of anything. Um, tell me what you did today. <laughs> uh, you were... Today I was down in Estill County, uh, which is about an hour south of here. Uh, basically just freeing up room and hives. Uh, we have two yards on the same farm down there. There's maybe 40 hives or so. Um, and everything came through winter all right. We lost one or two down there. Um, but th they're not very strong. So I was actually, I've been sort of relieved. This is the time of year where I'm working a lot for Claire at UK. And then so my own bees get ahead of me. So I was kind of glad that they were a little bit weak. You know, got a few more weeks before they start really booming. Yeah, you know, I you listen to the podcast, so you know that uh, I work for a living. So I, I scramble whenever I can to go out. And I did go through and triage my hives this year. And, you know, you, that's what you do. You look at them and say, I got more time for this one, got more time for that one. I'm going to need to do something about. So, yeah, I know that, <laughs> that uh, activity. and. Uh, that's the fun part of spring, isn't it? Yeah, well, it is. The last couple of years, they've just really gotten ahead of me, and I've been catching an awful lot of swarms, taking taking bees back out of the trees. So. Yeah, that's the way it goes sometimes. So, Doug, this has been great. I, I'm so glad we finally got to catch up. I'm sorry for all the mismatches, but uh, it's been interesting to hear. And you know, I think this is the first time I've had somebody from Kentucky on the program. So. 
I appreciate you laboring through all my questions about what you had going on there, but I think people will find it interesting to just get a sense of what it's like there. And sounds like you, you got things going on there and I'm really looking forward to meeting you guys when I come to Kentucky and, you know, we'll sit down and do what beekeepers do sometimes just have a beverage and talk about bees. You bet. I, I, I really enjoyed it and I've enjoyed your podcast. I, I look forward to meeting you when you're down in Kentucky this, this summer. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see you at that time and just uh, tell Tammy, I said, Hey, and okay. thanks for agreeing to come on and really appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Kevin. I'm going to come back at the end of the episode. And once again, express my gratitude for Doug stopping by whenever I listen back as I produce some of these things, I always try to reflect on what the regional differences are. It's always an interest to me to see if there's a change in the way you do beekeeping in Kentucky, actually it sounds pretty parallel to what we do here in New Jersey. I think if you look at the mid-Atlantic region, um, maybe up to New Hampshire and down through Kentucky, until you get into South Lake, Georgia, Louisiana, and so on, a lot of it is similar, it's just different timing, although there's pockets of uh, different areas that have forage that changes or mountains or things like that but uh, always interesting to learn about what it's like where someone is i also find it adventurous to talk to people who have branched out and doing different programs meaning doug uh, and tammy are sideliners and you know from that perspective they have a different take on different uh, ways to run their business it always strikes me to talk to someone like Grant Stiles, for example, that just has no use for any of the hobbyist style things. Everything's about efficiency and volume and moving through. In time, I guess, when you work with that many hives, it changes your perspective. I kind of like the slow-paced hobbyist uh, tinkering version that we have, and, and you know, but it's always fun to to live and listen through how other people do things. A no local hive report for this episode, just a quick note that I finished what I think is uh, a lot of the groundscaping. I uh, just wanted to clean the area up around the new apiary and I planted grass today. So um, I think it's in good shape. Hopefully it'll rain at some point or I'm going to have to run a hose up there to water the grass. But yeah, those hives were banging uh, all the time I was working up there and I know that this is going to be a really big spring for us, so I have happy notions. Um, we went this week, Friday, out to Betterby up in New York State to purchase the Langstroth, Langstroth, the license extractor. So in the next episode, I'll bring a little bit about that visit and what happened and yeah, I guess I'll just tie it off here. Thanks to Doug once again. And like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. Take care.